to the Macro Ops Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon uh, Balo. This morning, I have the privilege to do what is arguably going to be the most eclectic interview that we've done so far, albeit it's a small podcast, but I have Callum Lang on. And Callum, just as a little bit of background, I'm going to see if I can do this in, all, in, in only one breath because it's, it's so much. But Callum is a New Zealander who started, built, bought, and sold dozens of businesses in a range of industries across multiple continents. He's the co-founder and CEO of MBH Corporation, PLC, and is a partner in a private equity company called Unity Group. He sits on numerous advisory boards, is widely published, and regularly featured in the media. Callum is based in Singapore with his family and can be contacted through LinkedIn and Twitter. So I was able to do that in two breaths, which isn't bad. So Callum, thanks so much <laughs> for joining the podcast. Thank you, Brandon. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on. So when I was researching you in order to figure out, you know, obviously I'm going to go down a lot of topics here, but I was researching, trying to figure out, you know, what, what has been said before in previous podcasts that you've been on and something really interesting found its way through the interwebs. And I want to get your comments on this. So word on the street is that once you shut down the entire country of Italy's internet, (laughs) I don't, I don't necessarily have a laying up some softballs to start. Are you? (laughs) I was just so I, I my my only question really is 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 how <laughs> so um, uh, it was the the very early days of the internet um, so it was my first job out of university and I was working for a company called uh, UUNet Worldcom uh, um, prior to to Worldcom's accounting challenges um, and I was working in the European Operations Center and. Italy was one of the uh, last European countries to kind of embrace the the internet. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of, so this is late 90s, uh, there wasn't a lot of redundancy um, on the on the internet. And I was installing a new client um, in Italy, and I was sitting in my office in Amsterdam, and uh, I made a typo and basically I told the router to stop sending IP traffic through um, and at that time all of Italy's traffic went through our one router um, and uh, suddenly my screen went blank because no longer could any internet traffic go go through um, and then all the screens around me started flashing red because uh, we could no longer get to uh, the Italian clients. Um, so yeah, de- desperate phone calls were made to uh, someone to jump on their Vespa and head over to the um, uh, the, the op-, op center and reboot the router so I could could get back up. And uh, <laughs> yes, I took Italy offline for half an hour on a Friday evening. And um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing to think of now. Like. Uh, yeah, given how the internet has progressed in the last 20, 30 years. But um, uh, yeah, no, that was, uh, that was a good learning experience. <laughs> very, very expensive company. It, yeah, it, it, it almost reminds me of some sort of James Bond movie where, you know, the villain or something just hacks out an entire country and 
all of their power grid or all their internet goes down. And to hear that that <laughs> happened, I just I just couldn't. I was like, this is honestly incredible. Um, you know, just added to the list of, of really cool things that you've done. So with that out of the way, you know, because that because because that was really just me me scratching my 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 itch. With that out of the way, tell us tell us about about kind of who you are, how you got started in the business. I know from reading um, some of your sources that you don't have the traditional finance MBA background, and so I want to give the listeners an idea about how you got into entrepreneurship and business and owning businesses. Yeah, so I start, started um, on the entrepreneur uh, sort of path. Um, so like many entrepreneurs, kind of uh, started off hustling as a, as a kid with various little jobs and um, uh, entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, I had quite a successful ice cream um, business as a, uh, I was probably like 13, 14, selling homemade ice cream to restaurants and bars around my hometown in Cambridge in the UK. Um, and uh, yeah, just kind of kept uh, kept doing the entrepreneurial thing. My first kind of grown-up business was uh, a recruitment business in the telco industry, and it was the height of the dot-com boom. Uh, obviously, at the time, I didn't tell them I'd deleted Italy. Um, but uh, we started recruiting IP engineers and selling them into telcos. And that was uh, very successful, but um, predominantly because of, you know, we were just in the bubble and uh, everything went went well. Um, and uh, yeah, it kind of just went, went on from there, um, kept building businesses. And then ultimately, I think, uh, you know, I started, as I got better, I sort of had a bit more success and started to have a bit of capital to invest in other people's businesses and so I've been doing that for about 10 years and then for the last five years uh, really looking at how small businesses can start to leverage the public markets and and that kind of uh, is where I've put all of my focus for the last five years um, so yeah that's kind of the the evolution so it sounds like you've always wanted to kind of be in business or maybe you just had this, you know, genetic tilt towards towards, you know, hustling and and and, and capitalism and almost, you know, trying to trying to be the best business person you could. Uh, was was w- w- were there any early influences in your in your life, whether it be, you know, from your parents and your childhood that got you, you know, started down that path? Um, th- there seems to be quite a lot of commonalities with uh, entrepreneurs that, that I meet. So a lot of us um, were not particularly good at school, uh, not not particularly good at being at responding to authority, um, but also quite like creating value for others and, and solving problems. Uh, and that's kind of really what the, at the heart of entrepreneurship is, solving problems and creating value for, for other people. And um, uh, so I think that was it. I mean, I, I personally came from a, a relatively poor background, and so I was always kind of, uh, you know, just just wanted to have a little bit bit of extra cash, and and uh, that kind of um, carried on. And uh, yeah, I think it's um, once once you have that, once you start solving problems and, and getting rewarded for it, it's uh, it's pretty difficult to to go back to. Um, the the other side and I think that that's sort of a what we're doing now and in and I know we'll get onto this later but the way we help small businesses is we find a lot of um, small businesses when they come 
to want to exit their business or sell their business, uh, one of the, the uh, or I guess the most common exit for small businesses is to sell themselves to a bigger company in a trade sale. And, and that's very often sort of a three-year or a five-year earnout, um, which sounds good, but it basically you, you then have an entrepreneur trying to be an employee for three years. Um, right. And that just doesn't tend to work out very well. We're, we're, we're not very good at being told what to do, unfortunately. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think once once you've kind of uh, started on the entrepreneurial journey, it's, uh, it's difficult to go back. That's very true. Now, let's transition a little bit. You born and raised in, in New Zealand, but you actually now are living in Singapore. You have your family there. Take us through that transition. Why did you move and why why Singapore in particular? I know a lot of other um, investors are, are kind of bullish on Singapore. I think one of the most famous mm. is, 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 is Jim Rogers, who actually Rogers. lives yeah, who actually lives in Singapore. And so take us through that transition phase. Yeah, so I was born in New Zealand, um, but I didn't spend too much time there. I actually uh, grew up more in the UK. Um, but then uh, when, so I've got kind of dual, dual nationality, which is kind of useful. Uh, but then I was looking with my first business, I was looking at sort of the big global mega trends that were happening. And this is sort of 20, 20 years ago. But even then, it was pretty obvious that there was this huge transition of wealth from west to east um so with the rise of india and china and uh, asia in general and and uh, as a young entrepreneur it seemed to me that it made a lot more sense to be on the receiving end of that equation right. than on the giving end um so uh yeah head, headed over to asia uh, about 20 years ago um originally started off in uh, in bangkok and thailand and, and built a number of businesses there and then uh yeah we we moved to singapore nine ten years ago um and it's just it's a fantastic uh base the work that i do is is global the companies and the investors that we work with are, are global so i spend a lot of time on the road and singapore is just a very good base for that um it's it does have a, a it has a very pro-entrepreneurial and investing government, um, mm -hmm. so uh, that's that's very attractive. And and yeah, you kind of within a five-hour radius of my apartment, you've got half the world's population. So wow. there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, so yeah, no, I, I love it. It's a it's a great great place. Speaking of the world's you know, half the world's population within a five, I guess, five-hour radius of, of where you live. You've built an impressive and you've really scaled your personal brand um, in Asia. And multiple, you know, multiple articles or multiple sources, when I searched for you, said that, you know, you have one of the most broad reaches in Asia and you're one of the most connected people in Asia. Um you know, how did you how did you go about building your personal brand in Asia? Did you kind of have some sort of connection before you moved, or did you just kind of, you know, drop yourself in 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 Singapore and then try to flywheel your network out? Yeah, I didn't know anyone in Asia when I first moved over. Um, uh, in fact, my now wife, then girlfriend, um, she got the I, I well, we both wanted to move to Asia. She got the job first and and I kind of followed after her so yeah I really didn't know anyone um in Asia 
and um, I'll uh, I'll make uh, for any of your listeners I'll I'll make available uh, my first book, Progressive Partnership, as a as a free gift for them. Um, so I'll set something up with you in the show notes. Um, but that yeah, kind of awesome. talk, talks about how I. Uh, when when you have your network taken away from you, you suddenly have to to start building a network from scratch, right. and um, a lot of the things you kind of take for granted uh, when you've always had a support network around you um, are, are taken away, and so you suddenly have to start thinking about well, why would somebody want to be in your network, and how do you create enough value that other people will actively go out of their way to get you in their network, and and uh, do that and I kind of saw all of the people that I respected all of the successful entrepreneurs that I respected had amazing networks so, yeah they just pick up the phone and speak to the CEOs of other companies or politicians or lawyers or journalists or whoever it was um, and I thought I want that but I don't want to wait until I'm 50 60 years old like the like the rest of these entrepreneurs um, so right. how, how do I get that sooner um, and I just uh, over the years kind of figured out you know the more value you can create for other people the more people will want to be in that network and obviously you know, the more people are in that network the more opportunities come to you and 99% of those opportunities aren't right for you so you push them back into your network and because you're pushing opportunities into your network so often more people want to be in your network so it kind of uh, becomes a, a bit self-perpetuating right um yeah, so that was it. And, and actually on the, the personal brand stuff, um, it's funny you should mention that because I've just, uh, well, I'm based in Singapore today. I'm in London um, at a conference and uh, one of the other speakers at the conference is a very good friend of mine, Daniel Priestley, who wrote the book Key Person of Influence, uh, which for anyone that's interested in personal branding is a, is a fantastic um, book. And, and he, uh, working with him was sort of a, a decision that I took to, to really put my brand out there. And, and I wasn't, it wasn't something I was particularly comfortable with, but what I quickly discovered is that uh, when you take the time to, to write content and videos and do podcasts and all of these things, what, what you discover is it saves you so much time um, because when people come to you and, and want to have a meeting with you, you know, if they've read your book or seen your videos or listened to your podcast, then they already know uh, the value you can create. They already mm. know your your own values and and uh, how you can help them. So, yeah, meetings that suddenly become much quicker. You know, when I was in my twenties, I'd have these endless coffee meetings as an entrepreneur, and and you know, I'd spend the first half hour trying to to sell myself before we could even right. talk about. Uh, the opportunity and, and of course the worst person to sell yourself is yourself right. <laughs> so uh, whereas whereas today if, if um yeah i guess much, much like yourself you you, know, you um, contacted me you found out some stuff about me and um so we're, we're talking you already have a good sense of the value that i can create so um yeah it's uh it, it wasn't something i was particularly comfortable with at, at the beginning but it's definitely uh paid paid dividends I mean that that is that is so powerful, and there's there's so many 
intersections between what you just said about brands and personal brands and business and building businesses and, and, and solving problems and having people know exactly what your value is, what your culture is right off the bat. And um, I just think, I, I, you know, I just think there was so much power in that. And so, you know, coalescing or, or, or kind of coalescing into talking about building businesses and, 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 and buying businesses, I'm actually looking at a book that I read a few months ago, Build or Buy, Then Build by Walker Diebel um, or Diebel. Okay. And it, you know, it, it just talks about the idea of acquiring already profitable existing businesses. And, and I know that in doing some research, that's something that you're very passionate about, but you've also started your own businesses. And so walk us through maybe the nuances and the different hurdles between buying a business that's already profitable um, and then trying to start your own. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's an interesting space, especially since I think the in the in the last 10, 15 years, there's been such a hype uh, about kind of startups and every year it kind of gets more and more hyped and um, media and governments are yeah, persuading people that they should give up their good jobs and follow their passion and go and start these businesses. And um, uh, th there's not very much talk about either uh, how difficult it, it really is uh, and how detrimental to your health it can be when it goes wrong. Um, but even if you're successful, uh, what happens at the other end? Um, so, you know, we hear all of these stories about sort of WhatsApp selling for however many billion um, but the, the reason we hear about those stories is because they're so rare. Uh, the majority of businesses uh, really don't have a particularly exciting end to them. Uh, it's right. actually, uh, yeah, it's sort of like this, this secret that nobody talks about. But um, there's a lot of great businesses out there. And, and unfortunately, um, well, fortunately, if, if, uh, if you see the opportunities in it, but 70% of them are, are owned by baby boomers and baby boomers are looking to retire. Uh, and so when you have a glut of businesses that suddenly come up for sale, uh, like, like anything in economics, you know, the abundance means that the value of all of them drops down. So small businesses mm -hmm. uh, and small businesses are, are trick, they're, they're, they're tricky and, and investors are skeptical of them, especially sophisticated capital. Um, and But also people aren't buying them like they used to. So uh, today it's so glamorous and, and also so cheap and easy to start a startup that um, people are choosing to start their own business rather than to look at acquiring an existing business. And so, right. yeah, the what's what's happening is you're getting um uh, i mean hearing these stories on, on literally on a day-to-day -day basis people just shutting down their businesses because they can't find buyers or they're being offered so little money to take the the company off their hands that uh, it's just not not worth it and that's um yeah so that's, that's a very sorry state of affairs but it's um uh yeah that yeah, it's it's a problem, but it's a it's an opportunity as as well. And so, I mean, I think uh, starting starting a business is a great rite of passage. It's a it's a good thing to kind of to to go through. And and um, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Elon Musk said that uh, starting and running a business is like 
chewing broken glass while staring into the abyss. Um, and, uh, it's not not far off. Um, uh, so I think, um, yeah, it's kind of a it's, a it's a good thing to go through uh, to to get some learning. But actually, uh, once you're on the other side, I would much rather have conversations with successful business owners uh, than people that are in in that sort of startup space. So. Mm. Uh, it's such a, you know, such a lot of things have to come together perfectly. There's such a huge dollop of luck right. for a business to be successful. Um, so I would much rather spend my time with business owners that have already figured out how to yeah, product market fit in, in the sort of startup world. But yeah, they're just mm-hmm. selling selling good products, solving real problems, um, yeah, typically, uh, yeah, most of the businesses we deal with, they're 20 plus years old. The, the founders have been in their industry for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and they're just good, good businesses. And yeah, right. Sort of, uh, that's, that's really the stuff that excites me at the moment. Yeah. And it's, I was just reading and I think it was from Brent Bishore who runs, uh, adventure ES or adventure.es, um, which is, a, yeah. which is a, you know, really, really popular and really well-run private equity fund. And he sent out a tweet where, and I don't know if I'm getting the geographic location right or wrong, but basically it was a small Alaskan newspaper publishing business or something around the newspaper publishing business and its sell price, which was which was real. I mean, this was an article in The Guardian. I'll actually link to it in the show notes. Its sell price was $0. Someone was literally, literally trying to give away this business for free and it goes right yeah it goes it goes right with what you were saying where you have a big a big you know supply of these small businesses that are run by like you said baby boomers that are looking to retire looking to take the you know gas or take their foot off the pedal and kind of you know relax into the latter years of their life and they can't find buyers and so this drags yeah. the price down and and you know the fact that someone's trying to sell a business for free and there's still no bidders just makes you wonder you know where the opportunity really is is it in these high flying tech businesses or is it or or is it in these boring businesses that no one's looking at especially you know we'll call them millennials gen you know gen z's or yeah. or, or gen xers yeah yeah, yeah and and look uh, uh highly recommend following brent's stuff um because we actually have uh although i i didn't even know of him until sort of about a year or so ago when i started following his stuff we we have very similar ideas um and both of us come from the the place of how do you help these these small businesses um we we have different solutions so he has uh his approach is keeping it all private um and he's he's far more talented than me i think uh i saw somewhere he's raised hundreds of millions um to to acquire these companies and and the term sheet he offered his investors was you'll get your money back in 27 years um, well, I, I, I couldn't do that, do that sale. Um, so, uh, but, but I love it. You know, it's, it's the same ethos of look, these are, these are great businesses. And, and actually you find, um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway back in the, um, way back in kind of the early days of Berkshire Hathaway, 
um, Warren Buffett's sort of a, approach of finding good companies, not fiddling with them, not, not sort of interfering with them, um, meant that well-run family businesses wanted to be acquired by Berkshire Hathaway. So it sort of became the destination of choice. Right. And, and uh, so there's a, there's a few people that's not, but it's literally kind of on, on a handful uh, of us that sort of take that that same approach. Um, uh, whereas the sort of the traditional approach and, and where you kind of have typical sort of private equity approach is you buy these companies, you saddle them with debt, you throw in a few consultants and rip the heart and soul out of the business and mm. try and flip it to the next person. Right. Um, which is a yeah, it's a valid business model. It's just not one that uh, <laughs> that we're we're particularly fond of. You've bought and sold businesses, like we said in the in the intro, in a lot of industries and across continents. What are what are what are some of your favorite types of businesses? And you know this this doesn't have to be you know an industry favorite or company specific, but you know some of the businesses that you look for that you get excited about, and then what areas, what what countries do you find yourself doing most of your business? Um, yeah, so well, let, let me answer the last one first. So we tend to f- stick with English language, English rule of law. Uh, so mm-hmm. New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, UK, US, Canada. Um, and yeah, they're mature economies. There's, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of these great businesses out there that are kind of, looking for for opportunities um and while we get lots and lots of opportunities from other markets that there's just so many low-hanging fruit in those countries that that's sort of the the focus um in terms of industries uh, we we tend to like um older economy boring businesses <laughs> so yeah uh you know com- companies that uh they're not trying to change the world they just know how to to solve problems for their clients and and they look after their staff well and they look after their customers well and they're um yeah tend to be fairly cautious most of them have never taken on debt and and typically would stay away from that um i have a uh i I always get excited by anything in the sort of sports and fitness space because I've had a few mm. businesses of my own in in that background. Um, so uh, I, I do find myself drawn to those businesses, but but actually I kind of have to um, uh, I have to sort of hold hold myself back um, because if it, if I get it if we acquire a company in an industry I, I know nothing about. I, I've got no sort of uh, desire to go in and share my years of wisdom, um, which is probably a good, <laughs> probably a good thing. Uh, whereas when it, when it comes to sport and fitness and those, I was like, oh, I've got, I've got so many ideas, which um, yeah, I pr- probably need to rein myself back from that. But it, it is a, it's a space that I, I really like, and um, we're actually working with some some great guys in the US that um, are looking to put together a whole group of uh, sports events companies so um yeah hopefully we'll start to see that next year which i'm looking forward to yeah it really sounds like you and brent have a lot in common in terms of just you know on the search for boring type businesses family run you know really solid culture there's definitely a lot of similarities there um let's you know you 
you kind of mentioned it a little bit in terms of, you know, what you like and you kind of lean towards sports events. But, uh, you know, reading reading in, in, in some of your past podcasts, you've talked about that, you know, you don't like to invest in your own ideas, but you like to pre-sell the idea. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. take, you know, what, is, what does pre-sell the idea mean? And then for those that are maybe a bit confused about saying that you never invest in your own ideas, what, is, what does that <laughs> mean? <laughs> okay, well, well, let me explain how much money and time I've wasted by uh, investing in my own ideas, first of all. So um, this, this was kind of an, an evolution. So I used to, uh, you know, I'd have an idea for a business or a product. Um, I would do the kind of uh, typical entrepreneur research, which is kind of talk to my mates in the bar and, and tell them about my new idea and did they think it was brilliant? And of course, being mates, I was like, oh yeah, that's a brilliant idea. And I said, well, is it something you'd buy? And they go, yeah, yeah, definitely I'd buy that. And you go, great. That's all the market research I need. Um, and then I would go and spend six months, uh, you know, building this product and chucking all my savings into it and being very excited and uh, doing all the fun stuff of kind of product development and um, right. but not actually checking in with the market. Uh, and then I'd you know, have the finished product and I'd go back to the market and, and say, uh, oh, I've got it now. So uh, you're going to write me that check. I go, oh, well, <laughs> look, it's a great, great product. Now's not a good time. You know, it's been a tough month. And, um, and you realize that actually once, once it comes to, to writing a check, there's a huge difference between something being a, a good idea on the face of it and, and something that people will actually pay for mm. um so having made that mistake and i'm a very slow learner so i had to make that mistake uh, uh, many times um but uh, eventually i kind of realized that uh i i wasn't the best person to appraise my own ideas and uh, because i always think my ideas are genius um <laughs> and and then then the market doesn't always agree with me uh so um yeah, well, as as an entrepreneur, I kind of shifted my focus, and and it basically came if I couldn't pre-sell at least three of them. Um, so basically, get somebody to put a deposit down on this product. So I kind of say, look, you know, this is a ten thousand dollar product, uh, and if you put down a three thousand dollar deposit today um, when it's completed you can have it for seven thousand or whatever it was but i would need to get uh, at least three upfront sales um you can always get one you, there's always some sucker you know in your network <laughs> that, that will just do it because they, they like you um, right right so i force myself to do three or alternatively is to go and find an investor hmm. uh, and so and uh, again get them to invest so that i would have the the time to to build the product um but if i couldn't do that uh, and if i couldn't do that in a relatively short period of time it was sort of a a strong signal to me that perhaps my genius idea wasn't quite as good as i thought it was and, <laughs> and probably not not worth me uh spending investing any more time or money into i really like that and it actually leads us right into 
getting through, you know, some of your books. You already mentioned your first book, Progressive Partnerships, which I, you know, want to expand a little bit more on. And in that book, you really talk about the shift from competition to collaboration in terms of markets. And, you know, the idea of business going forward being much more collaborative in nature versus cutthroat dog eat dog. And can you expand on that idea and 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 what are some of the impacts that has on certain businesses, maybe even certain business models? Yeah, so it's um, uh, it's funny because it seems uh, to me it kind of seems pretty pretty obvious. I think you know there's been with the barriers to entry of creating a new business that have dropped so low. Um, there's so many little businesses out there now. Um, and actually it's, it's a fairly unfair fight the small businesses against big businesses. You know, just big businesses will always have the excess resources and capital and all of those sort of things. What small businesses have is the maneuverability and speed to market to, to move around, but you can't really compete as a small business against a big business. But what you can do is you can start to partner up with other companies. And, and in progressive partnerships, basically I, I had to do it for no other reason than I didn't have cash in, in order to acquire the, the stuff that I needed. So I started having to figure out how I could create enough value for others. Um, and that was sort of how the partnerships model evolved. And but what I realized was that there, um, uh, yeah, there's, there's just sort of a, I, I think there's a shift in thinking. And, and actually, if you open your mind to the, um, the possibility that uh, there's, there's actually these collaborative opportunities everywhere and that, that basically anything that you're missing in your business today, um, so whether that's capital or whether that's resources or um you know quality staff or distribution channels or whatever it is that you feel is is missing somebody out there uh is on the opposite side of the equation and they've got an abundance of what you need and they're missing something else so right how can we, how can you facilitate working with them and increase the size of the pie for everyone um and I think, uh, yeah, that sort of philosophy has guided me and it, and it makes for very different conversations because you're, um, rather than trying to sell someone something when I meet them, I'm always much more interested in how, how we could work together. Uh, how could we partner together? Um, because then you, you go from trying to sell to one person to partnering with somebody that could potentially sell to. 300 people um, and that's sort of a much quicker way to to grow so partnerships has always been something that uh, I've worked for a uh, specifically on and actually the the stuff that we're doing today in the capital markets uh, is the ultimate kind of small business collaboration it's this uh, it's a collaborative IPO in, in effect but I know we'll we'll get onto that later yeah and there's there's so many threads that I can that I can pull at this and and one of them is just you know from a from a practical standpoint someone that wants to start a partnership someone that wants to you know go from zero to one in terms of having an idea or maybe having an having a you know investment strategy that they want but they just don't have the capital how would you structure those partnerships in terms of 
you know, let's say you don't have much capital and you want to partner with someone yeah. that does, how do you ha- how do you structure that return? You know, obviously the person with the most capital would get, you know, the lion's share of those returns in terms of like a split. So how would you how would you structure that? Um yeah, so you you fundamentally you've got to figure out how you can create value for them. So somebody that's sitting on capital is is looking for returns on their capital. Um and so you, you need to figure out what you can can do. And and I mean what, what I talk about in progressive partnerships is basically doing the work behind the scenes. So if um I'll give you give you uh, an example in sort of an, an investment space. If I'm if I'm looking to get in front of a particular uh, high end investor, I'm not going to go and uh, knock on that person's door cold. It's just that's the that's really the worst way for for me to introduce myself. Uh, it's much more powerful for them to have heard my name from two or three other people that they trust uh, or to be introduced by um, somebody that that is already delivering value to them. So I might have to do a few months back work and create value for, it could be 15, 20 other people before I get introduced to the person that I want to make the pitch to. Hmm. But it's worth doing that back work um, because when this person, uh, and, and ideally what, what you actually want to happen is that person to reach out for you. And, and this is the kind of the, um, uh, the, the model I talk about in progressive partnerships is you want to be creating so much value in your own world that that person wants to be a part of what you're doing more than any, than that outweighs any risk they would have of being involved with you. Um, so it's, uh, it takes a little bit longer, but it's, um, it's kind of like the, the equivalent of never pay retail always look at what you could do to, to, uh, pay wholesale. Um, and yeah, it's that there's always a, a back route and uh i I mean the the other example i give is you you look at actually tim ferris is a great example of this if you like tim ferris and and he's very transparent with the way he does things so tim ferris releases a book it becomes a new york bestseller for four years or whatever um Mm -hmm. and you think well yeah that's just that's tim ferris but you actually look at the work he puts in uh and he basically puts like a year's worth of work in behind that's got nothing to do with the actual book it's all about building the partnerships and the Mm. uh, distribution channels and the gifts and the podcasts and the meat so that yeah to the to the untrained eye it looks like he just pushed out his book and got a bestseller but actually yeah he's done all of this work behind And, and actually you find every entrepreneur is like that it's uh you you yeah, somebody does an amazing product launch or uh, there's a phase when people were kind of making a million bucks on Kickstarter and everyone, wow, it's so easy to make a million bucks on Kickstarter. What they didn't realize was that the company had already pre-sold the first half million um, and they'd spent a year building a community and priming that community to all order on day one. Um, 
So, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that goes on behind the scenes that, that people just aren't aware of. Um, uh, and it, yeah, it starts with you just got to figure out how you can create more value for the other person uh, than, uh, than you're asking for. I really, I really like that. And in terms of partners or, you know, we can call them LPs in, in, in the investment world, especially for, you know, the kind of audience that we have here on the podcast, which is more of a value tint. Um, you know, there's, there's, there, there's a lot of fund managers out there, small fund managers. There's a, there's a heightened importance on choosing the right LP and really, a fund or you know your your investment strategy is only as good as your least aligned LP in a sense. So how yeah. do you how do you find great partners and you know what what makes a great LP? I yeah so um, that's a, an interesting question a question I've been wrestling with for a while because uh, as you mentioned I'm not from. A finance background, um, so I'm I'm from the entrepreneurial background, and it was only when we started working in the capital markets that um, I kind of had this steep learning curve of uh, trying to understand uh, this space and made uh, an awful lot of mistakes in the beginning because um, you're you're absolutely right with what what you say. If you get the wrong investors, um, whether it's an LP or whether it's on the uh, capital markets, um, you really need to have people that have aligned values with you because, um, and, and I've, you know, we, we got smacked uh, several times on this because entrepreneurs come from a place of you create value for others. Uh, and you get rewarded at some point in the future for that. I mean, that's basically the kind of the fundamentals of, of entrepreneurship is this creating right. value. And, and suddenly you go into uh, the capital markets where uh, there's there's some different there's different sets of values uh, uh, within that investor community. And and um, you know, value investors, for example, think very differently to. Uh, traders and you know, there's, it's it's a very um, you know th- there's very different and I think the mistake we made was we got so excited by wow look at all, all these people with money and we, we kind of take investment from anyone mm. uh, and we realized that uh, yeah people had, were, were playing a very different game um, or even if they're playing the same game uh, they might have different time horizons but right. actually that's that's <laughs> a massive massive uh, challenge. Um, so I think uh, it almost goes back to that, the, the personal branding stuff that we were talking about earlier. Um, when uh, when you can go out, and, and actually I guess coming back to, to Brent, his, his ability to raise money on a 27-year uh, timeline, yeah. Um, yeah. which, yeah, it, it astounds me, but it, but equally, I know that what he he's so congruent with his message and so authentic, um, and there's a there's a tiny percentage of the investor community that will resonate with what he's doing and will want to be a part of that. Right. Um, and and he's very clear; he's not trying to appeal to to everyone. Um, and so I think the. Uh, 
as you can get your message out there about what is the value that you provide and um uh and, and what are your values because you know within that um investor base you there are people I mean, for, for us but particularly um so value investors are great we, we also right now we we have a lot of success with sort of family offices and high net worths that come from a small business entrepreneurial background because they immediately resonate with with what we're doing um and they can you know we, we don't need to sell them on on why a small business owner would want to join us whereas if i talk to um somebody that's never been in the small business space they just don't understand yeah. the the model they, they don't understand you know in in our model um, and again we'll touch on this later but in our model it's all about leaving the small business owner in charge and and in control of their own destiny and able to run their own team and their culture the way they always have um, and yet the first question i would get from sort of a typical investment banker or private equity is well, why would you trust the entrepreneur? Why wouldn't you fire them and put a real manager in place? Right. Um, and, and, and a real manager for them is a 32-year-old with an MBA. Um, whereas <laughs> yep. to, me, to, to me, like the guy that's proven that he can build this business, he or she can build this business for the last 30 years, has turned it into a profitable business, you know, is supporting the community and, and has staff that would die for them, you know, that's that's far more uh, valuable. Um, so yeah, you, you kind of have to. Um, uh, we we got very clear about who we didn't want to work with, um, and I think the the more specific we were about who we didn't want to work with, the easier it became to find the people that you do want to work with. And it sounds almost like the Charlie Munger, um, you know, Mungerism invert and always invert. And so if you just invert that question of what makes a great LP and you say, you know, what don't I want? You hit it right on the head. You know, you say, OK, well, if I just deduce everybody that I don't want out of my pool of potential LPs, then I'm all I'm left with by default is a pool of great potential partners for me. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I like that. I like that. So let's let's move on to your second book now, which is called Agglomerate. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, Agglomerate. Yeah. Yeah. So as the title suggests, which, you know, this is this is quite a statement, honestly. And so it says, you know, it takes you from idea to IPO in 12 months, which is, you know, it's 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 definitely definitely, it's definitely a bold claim. So kind of walk us through, you know, how is how is this how is this process, you know, obviously without revealing too many details because I want people to get the book. But from idea to IPO in 12 months, what are what are some of the ways people can fast track that? Yeah, so um, and actually, the uh, the subheading related to our own uh, coming up with the concept and getting listed within twelve months. Um, but let let me explain what agglomerate is. So uh, basically, my business partner Jeremy also came from a small business background, and we had been chatting, and he had identified that. Uh, you know, many of the small businesses that we knew had been very successful. And then the, the basically they got faced with uh, a few challenges. And one, one of the challenges small businesses face is something we call the scale paradox. 
you're, you're too small to go for the big contracts. And because you can't win those big contracts, you remain small. And, and oftentimes those big contracts go to another big company who just turns around and outsources them to you, but creams off all of the profit in the process. Um, and that's kind of frustrating for small businesses. Um, but then there's also the value piece. If you've built a 20, 30, $50 million business um, over the last 10, 20 years, you're creating a huge amount of value in the economy. Uh, you're creating a huge amount of value for your clients, clearly for your small business, uh, sorry, for your uh, employees and their families. There's a whole ecosystem of suppliers and partners and landlords that are all extracting value from your business. Um, but the one person that typically can't extract much value from their business is the business owner themselves. And hmm. you, you might be drawing a nice salary and you might be pulling out a couple of million in dividends each year, but compared to the impact, the economic impact of, of what you're doing, it's negligible. Right. Right. Um, and the only way you can really realize that value is to sell your business. Yet a lot of the entrepreneurs that we talked to didn't actually want to sell their business. They, they, they liked what they were doing. They liked their team. They liked their clients. Um, but there isn't really another choice because small businesses are incredibly unattractive to uh, sophisticated capital. So you can't, it's not like you can just raise cash to scale up. It's just not that easy. And, and if you can find that money, the investors typically want control. Um, and entrepreneurs hate giving up control. Uh, and then, and, and then so you kind of get stuck with, well, my default option is to sell to a bigger player to do a trade sale. Um, but as we've already touched on, that typically is kind of like a three-year or a five-year burnout, which generally doesn't work out very well for the entrepreneur in question. Most of them either quit in disgust or are fired sort of within you know, six to 12 months of uh, doing that deal. So it's a pretty, uh, pretty depressing outlook. And, and so um, basically the idea that, that we've now been working on for about five years is we create a publicly listed vehicle exclusively for the use of good, well-run, profitable small businesses. Uh, and in effect, what happens is the small business owner swaps their private capital for public capital, uh, sorry, private equity for public equity. Right. Um, but they carry on running the business the same as they always have. So it's their brand, it's their culture, it's their hiring and firing. Um, now, obviously, this is incredibly attractive to small businesses because now they get all the advantages of a plc um you know they get some liquidity in this stock they've got currency if they want to go and do acquisitions they can leverage the balance sheet to win bigger contracts uh yeah all, all of these advantages um, and the way we structure it is a perpetual earn-in so they come in at a relatively low multiple but every year the more profit they contribute to the holding group uh the more shares that they can earn so um, it's uh, yeah, it's incredibly uh, attractive to small business owners to to the point where we get uh, about a thousand applications a year from companies wow. that, that want to work with us. Yeah, li literally sort of two or three uh, every day. Um, now, not not all of them are right. Uh, we we tend to favour we like companies that are kind of one to ten million uh, EBITDA, um, minimal minimal to no debt, uh, ideally founder run. Um, but we kind of there's a few sort of exceptions, there, but that's kind of the target that, that we're looking for. Um, now, from an investor standpoint, 
uh, it's quite exciting because in effect what's happening is we are doing accretive acquisitions on a regular basis. Um, so we're only, we buy 100% of these companies. We use our own stock to do it. Every deal that we do is earnings per share accretive. Um, so yeah, you're being diluted from a percentage point, but the EPS goes up with every acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't suffer from any of the normal uh, indigestion, M&A indigestion, because we're not trying to merge all of these systems and cultures together. Right. We just do the transaction and then move on. Um, mm. So we can grow in, incredibly quickly. Uh, and just sort of each month, you're adding more and more EBITDA to, to the, uh, the company. And because we're growing uh, so quickly with using, but using stock to grow rather than cash, we're in a position where we can then issue dividends, um, which kind of makes you that very rare breed of being fast growth and, and dividend yielding at the same time, which is uh, uh, quite a nice idea. So yeah, that was the, um, the book that we, we wrote. Uh, we wrote it a few, a, a few years ago. Um, it was still, uh, it's been an incredibly effective uh, sales tool for us, for, for small business owners. Um, the model itself has obviously kind of evolved a bit since we wrote that book. Um, right. But uh, and we, we've learned a lot of lessons and been kicked in the nuts a few times uh, along the way. Um, <laughs> of course. But uh, but yeah, no, it's. Um, I mean, fundamentally, it kind of solves solves a problem for for small business owners. But it's um, also is quite interesting from an investor. Uh, perspective as well and, and this book agglomerate was written specifically for business owners um the next book that i'm uh, bringing out is is written much more for the investor community but it's interesting from an investment perspective is that small businesses make up more than 50 percent of developed countries gdp yet there's no vehicle for sophisticated capital to invest into small businesses you know that if you do it directly they're risky and they're illiquid um and yeah every every entrepreneur will tell you that they're going to exit in three to five years it's sort of a default line yeah. that we're taught at birth um, but the, the reality is there's just not that many exits out there and, and investors right. know that um and so yeah either don't want to invest or want control so they can uh get their exit when when they need it so obviously it hasn't all been you know, pie in the sky, tremendous success for you. You've experienced your fair share of, like you mentioned, being kicked in the nuts. And so what, what are, what are some of the worst deals? And I guess you can just kind of highlight, you know, in your opinion, the worst deal you've made and, you know, why did you make that error and what lessons did you take away from that? Um, oh, there's so many to choose from. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, so look, the, the the actually the the worst deal that we made, um, it, it was actually with a with an investor that ended up breaking breaking the law and illegally dumping uh, a huge amount of stock on on the market and and killing our, our share price. Um, hmm. And and I think what we so that was the first group that we put together, um, and this particular individual. Uh, basically destroyed uh, nearly a quarter of a billion of market cap um, wow. by illegal, illegally dumping three million shares onto the 
market. Um, and actually, the reality was he broke the law. Um, and so you can't, you know, if somebody's going to break the law, they're, they're going to break the law. Um, right. But we, what, what led to that was we didn't have a level of sophistication about knowing who we wanted to work with in terms of investors. Uh, it's kind of the point that I was making earlier. You know, we, we were very selective about the types of businesses that we wanted to work with. We weren't selective about the types of investors that we wanted to work with. And, and so that was, that was a steep learning curve. Um, and it put a lot of pressure on a lot of areas of, of the business. And it kind of forced us to grow up very quickly and, and, um, make sure that moving forward, we had a lot of redundancies in place and uh, were a lot more robust so that we we would never be kind of in that situation uh, again. Um, but I also kind of, it, it was incredibly painful to, to go through as, as these things always are. Um, but when you have gone through those experiences, I always kind of feel like you, you almost have a duty to learn from them and move on uh, and make them the foundation of, of kind of what you do next. Uh, otherwise you, you sort of wasted that, that experience. Um, mm. So, I mean, pe people often talk about kind of the, those bad things that, that happen and they look back and they go, oh, in, in retrospect, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to us. Um, well, I'm I'm not quite there yet. It's it's still <laughs> still still a little bit raw. Um, still hurts. Feel like I, yeah, I could have could have learned some of those lessons with it without losing quite so much uh, money. But um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, at the, at the end of the day, it's um, you know we we evolve and and move on, and um, I think we kind of. Uh, our, our our view of the world was look right now there's. People 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 that weren't listening now are definitely <laughs> paying attention. Okay, well it's I, I know it's a um a test fire alarm, it's not a an actual fire alarm in, in the hotel Do you wanna oh, um pause the uh the interview? Because I'm not sure how long this is gonna last. Yeah, what I'll do is I'll stop recording and then uh oh, oh there we go. I never had to stop it. There we go. I apologize to, to uh, your listeners. I, um, yeah, I, I, I can already see the people with headphones in, and then once they hit, <laughs> once they hit the 57 minute, I'll actually put this in the show notes, because once they hit the 57, 30, 32 second mark, it's, there's going to be so many, yeah, there's going to, there's going to be so many <laughs> F-bombs dropped from all the listeners, but, so we are, we are, we are through that, um, you know, yes. you you mentioned multiple times the importance of scale and the importance to scale quickly. What do you see from businesses, whether you know it's ones you're investing in or businesses that you're trying to start? You know, what are what are important aspects of scale and 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 how do you structure a business early on so that scale becomes something that's not necessarily effortless but much easier as the company grows? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I. Uh... <sighs> We spend a lot of time figuring out how to scale our holding company by mm -hmm. bringing in more companies and, and what are the structures and the processes and the systems to make sure that, that we can scale uh, effectively. Interestingly, I'm not 
a huge fan of individual companies focusing on scale for the sake of scale. Um, mm. And uh, the the reason, I guess, is you know we talked about these traditional businesses, which is which is what our holding company is made up of, um, and I don't particularly want them to be taking unnecessary risks to grow. Um, and right. I think this obsession, this obsession with growth that um, private equity and especially venture capital have, I, I think it's a really unhealthy for the entrepreneurs and, and the businesses themselves. So, you know, the typical VC model is, look, we'll acquire 10 companies, we're going to put massive pressure on all of them to be unicorns and consequently, uh, you know, five will fall over, three will kind of do okay and one one or two will uh, knock it out of the park and give us all the returns. Right. Um, and, and so consequently, there's this huge pressure on companies to grow for the sake of growing um, and consequently make decisions that aren't uh, you talk to any C CEO of that's VC backed will will tell you that yeah they're making decisions that don't necessarily make sense to them but they've got pressure mm. from the board to 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 grow mm. um, and uh, yes yeah, so it makes sense from a VC perspective because it's just factored into the model uh, I don't think it necessarily makes sense from the business owner's perspective and and knowing how hard it is on a business owner when uh, you run out of runway. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually more interested in longevity of, of companies. How do you design a company that's still going to be here in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years? Right. Um, and yeah, there's not, not a lot of talk about that, but I, that's something that I, I find much more interesting. Um, yeah. And, and it's growth, the second growth. Yeah. And it's, you know, what, what some people may not, you know, realize is that growth for the sake of growth just isn't necessarily that great, right? If you're not returning above your cost of capital or above, you know, the cost of you doing business, then, you know, more growth is actually value destructive. I mean, Bruce Greenwald talks about this a lot in some great, some great YouTube lectures, but, you know, growth for the sake of growth isn't, isn't, you know, the catch all here. Yeah. And, and look, it's, um, you kind of have to, to lay this one at, at uh, Silicon Valley's door um, <laughs> because yeah. Uh, yeah, the, there are a few businesses out there that get that critical mass and, and um, are able to kind of do the, the necessary land grab. But then you also see, and obviously at a very high profile level, like the, you know, the WeWorks of the world that um, are, are told by SoftBank, you know, you're not thinking big enough, go, go crazy. Uh, and then they go crazy and then they go, oh, well, that didn't work out so well. Um, yeah, and so, then you get weird work. Uh, yeah, exactly. But, but this is all happening at, at um, you know, you see one or two of these big in, implosions, but this is all happening on a daily basis in thousands of companies around the world that are being forced to, to grow. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's sort of that's the game that that you play if you play that tech startup space. Um, I'm much more interested in in a company that says to me, uh, at best, we might do five or ten percent growth next year, um, 
but it's predictable, it's reliable, we'll spit off cash. Um, and then I know that uh, you know, if I can add 10 of those businesses or 20 of those businesses to my group, um, our PLC has been incredibly fast growth. You know, we've, we've yeah. just added 20 million of EBITDA, 30 million of EBITDA in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's very aggressive growth, but the actual individual companies are still making rational decisions that will be in, ensure their stability and their survival, which uh, is, is much more interesting to me. Yeah, I really, I really like that, and personally resonate with that as well. I want to shift now to your latest book, which you mentioned, Entrepreneurial Investor, geared more towards the investor side of the, of 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 things, not necessarily the operators. That book is coming out, and correct me if I'm wrong, February 2020. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So you sent me a teaser. You sent me the intro and uh, the first chapter. And so I want to, I want to chat about just, you know, a couple, a couple high level things. The first thing is you mentioned that there's three circles within investing that exist. There's alpha impact and liquidity. Can you go over those three and kind of how they intertwine? And you say that the Holy grail is right in the middle of that, you know, um, that, that, th- that three Venn diagram sort of exactly exactly yeah so so to to be clear that was the the three circles for me personally um so with with my investor hat on um i realized over the years that um uh you know when i started investing i obviously made made a lot of mistakes Uh, there's a constant theme throughout this podcast isn't there my my mistakes um, <laughs> well, I, I, I know what people will really appreciate that because if you spend a lot of time on your mistakes then you really you really become authentic so you're not you know just this Callum Lang Asian network superstar that's only you know hit gold and touched you know touched everything and then turns to gold like you're an actual person that makes mistakes that's learned through these trial and errors so you know the audience will definitely appreciate that <laughs> Um, good, good. I'm glad somebody's getting some value from my pain. That's, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so look, I, I made, uh, uh, I, I invested in a lot of small businesses when, uh, when I started to get some capital, um, I realized that I liked, um, uh, as, as you kind of move up the wealth ladder and you start getting offered exotic, uh, derivative-based investment opportunities and stuff. And, and while you can get some fantastic returns from those, uh, I think AI didn't really understand them. I'm not sure the guy selling them to me really understood them. Nobody could tell me who was taking the other side of the bet. Um, and I just wasn't really enjoying the investment experience. Whereas when I invest into a small business and that business owner is able to then go and win a particular new contract or you know, hire some staff in order to deliver something. That to me was much more rewarding. And so that's the kind of the impact that I was looking for. But so I was kind of looking for investments that, that I feel like that, that was giving me that impact. Um, but equally, I wanted liquidity and, and that was kind of a, a problem because normally when you invest in small businesses, whether that's an angel or a more mature business, you know, your money's locked up for years and years. And, and like right. I said, the entre- entrepreneur will always say three to five years, but it, it's just, 
uh, it's just not not true. <laughs> it just very rarely <laughs> play, plays out like that. Yeah. Um, so I wanted liquidity because especially when you're entrepreneurial, you, you just see investment opportunities everywhere. And, and the capital or the opportunity cost of having my capital locked up in, in another business was was too painful. Uh, hmm. Did I lose you a bit there? You, you still nope. there? Yep, still yeah, there. Okay. Um, so uh, that that was I, I wanted kind of liquidity, and then obviously I wanted alpha. I wanted to uh, be getting better returns than I would get from just sticking it into a, a, a tracker. Uh, um, and what I discovered was that there was basically you can pick any one of those three circles, and you find that there's you know, no end of opportunities. Um, uh, try and find something that sort of sits across two of those, and and there's there's less, but there's still a few available and try and find something that's the intersection of all three of those. So delivers alpha, um, uh, is liquid and is making some positive impact, uh, in, in sort of the small business world. And it just didn't, didn't exist or, yeah, I really couldn't, couldn't find it. Um, and, uh, so, so that was kind of like the, the quest that I was on. And, and actually what I discovered was, um, the, the only thing that sort of fit that criteria was pre-IPO. Um, so if you mm. could invest in a company before they listed, then right. you're having a direct impact on that company because the money's going in into the business rather than you know, just buying out a secondary shareholder. Right. Um, you, if if it does indeed go go public, sort of within the next twelve months, you've, you've got some some liquidity um, and. Typically, uh, businesses, even though sort of 50% of IPOs um, never trade above their opening day, um, uh, you can still, if you if you get an, into enough pre-IPO, uh, you do still get uh, significantly uh, good good results. I think uh, Cambridge Associates um, basically came up with a 25-year study that said if you um, pre pre IPO if you sell on the day of listing, you average I think it was seventeen point six percent return, and if you hold wow. for a year, you average twenty four point five percent, and that was done over kind of like a, a huge amount of deals. But but the reality is, who can get that many pre IPO stocks? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, and that was actually my next question. Like, I wonder, I wonder the 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 viability of such a strategy. Yeah, exactly. And and look, I mean, even if you are the, the, the best pre-IPO stocks only get offered to the best companies or the best investment banks. Um, right. So it's kind of off off limits to, to the rest of us. Um, but basically what we realized with, with agglomerate, um, with this situation where we're taking 15 to 20 companies public through reversing into our shell, um, you actually kind of have that uh, that sort of scenario set up. So you kind of end up with the ideal scenario. So then if you can invest into these debt-free, profitable companies that are about to go public through an agglomeration uh, model so that you're going to get, and, and basically the way that we structure it is you're locked up for 12 months, um, but over the course of that 12 months, your share, you're holding shares in a company that's just adding EBITDA and now uh, balance sheet cash. 
uh, you, you basically find yourself in this, um, uh, yeah, this opportunity to make a direct impact on small businesses because they are using that capital for growth. Um, you should get uh, uh, certainly get get good returns because if you're you know, any any PLC that's growing at that pace um, is able to add accretive uh, acquisitions every, every single month, that, that should be uh, hugely rewarding. Um, and you get the liquidity in 12 months so that you can start to sell down. So, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of an ev- evolution as we, as we learned about agglomeration, as we learned about um, the capital markets and, and what investors were looking for and, and what we were looking for. Um, trying to marry those two things so that you can connect all of the trillions of dollars that are sloshing around in the finance world and start to reconnect them in a product that works for the finance community or the investor community, but also starts to give money to the people that can actually create the value in the world and can can create uh, jobs. It, It becomes really interesting. So, um, yeah, that was uh, those three circles are, are sort of is the heart of my investment uh, goal, um, and then it's uh, basically on, in the course of the book, and I'm happy to share the uh, the teaser with your audience, and because um, I can't share the full book because it's not <laughs> not out yet. Yeah, but, of course. Um, the the um, uh, yeah, so the, those three circles make up the three sections of the book. So I talk about uh, Alpha and I, t- and I talk about sort of the the impact and and that small business ecosystem uh, and I talk about the the liquidity and the agglomeration. I go through the the case studies of um, the the first agglomeration that we did that uh, ultimately didn't work because we had uh, these challenges. And I also talk about uh, the agglomeration that we're currently working on and and kind of give the the case study of the first year of that that business um so yeah ho- hopefully uh um pe- people will find it interesting it's it's the first time we've sort of written or i've written for investors rather than like agglomerate was very much written for small business owners yeah um, this, this one's written more for for investors that um and again yeah investors it's not right for every investor it's just sort of investors that like this space and uh are intrigued by what we're doing if anything, it could, you know, for, for someone that, you know, might not be exactly for for them, it is just another tool in the toolbox to think about business, to think about ideas, and to think about places to put your capital. But I want to go back. You mentioned SoftBank, which got me thinking about the recent slew of IPOs that are just money losing really beyond recent history's comprehension. I think 2019, and I could be wrong on this statistic, but I think 2019 is 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 one of the highest money losing years for IPOs in an aggregate form. Um, and this is mm-hmm. and this is excluding WeWork, which hasn't IPO'd yet. And so okay. you know, adding adding WeWork would maybe send it over the top. But do you think that this sort of strategy that you mentioned, the pre-IPO, you know, generating upwards of 17% annual returns, do you think that works? going forward where now there's not necessarily an emphasis on profitability but just you know like we mentioned growth for the sake of growth and trying to scale and just grow as much as you can acquire as many customers and then focus on turning on the profitability switch later um so i think they're just they're they're different games um and the 
the challenge that some of these companies have had um, is when same same challenge that that we have when when you're playing one game with one set of rules and you bump up against somebody else playing the game with a different set of rules. So Silicon Valley uh, and and most venture capital are playing by yeah it's one set of rules which is let's you know, let's do land grab and let's uh, build out as fast as possible and and ramp the valuation and it's in everybody's interest playing that game to keep the parcel moving as fast as possible right um, and and what you've found is that there's a lot of people on Wall Street that are playing a different game um, and uh, and yeah they don't really buy that that philosophy necessarily um, uh, they, they want to see uh, they want to see profits. They, they want to want to see yep. uh, something a bit more, bit more measurable. And um, you know, some sometimes you'll you'll get ahead in that game, and sometimes you'll you'll get smacked in that game. Um, so I I think um, it, it's just important. Like if you're an investor, you really need to be very clear uh, which game you're playing and why. And I think uh, you know you can make a lot of money playing the tech startup and the VC game if you want there's, there's some fairly well established rules for um uh you know, inflating the value of businesses if you want to play that game um if you're uh yeah but, but if you want to play sort of the value game or um if you you know for for us we just made a decision that, that we actually we like speaking we like working with we like spending time with um good business owners like guys and women in their 50s 60s that have built businesses for 20 30 years that just got amazing war stories um yeah you know they've been through a couple of recessions they've had several bloody noses along the way and they've learned those lessons and and for us i'd much rather spend time uh learning from them than talking to a uh you know 22 year old who thinks they can um yeah solve, solve the world's music problems um <laughs> or whatever that the, the uh, issue is um but uh, yeah it's 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 a diff- different game so you, you need to be clear who what game you're playing and and who are the the right people to support you in the, in that game so um i think that's the that's the challenge that's sort of happening on on wall street with ipos at the moment and the, the silicon valley stuff it's a wild time to be alive when the idea or even the notion of wanting to see profitability in a company is becoming this novel idea where it's, you know, it's like, oh, you want to see profitability? Wow, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. it's just, so, just so funny to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But I'm also not sure how, like, I think the majority of listings, and I'm, I'm not basing this on on any research that I've done, but I think everything gets skewed by a few high profile companies. Um, so we, we kind of focus on, on these, you know, the WeWorks and the Ubers of the world because they they make great fodder for, for Twitter and Correct. Uh, news and stuff. Um, but I still, I think the sort of the majority of companies that are, are listing worldwide are, are still, um, Profitable. Uh, there's a lot of company. I remember when we listed our first agglomeration 
I think we were the first company, we listed in June, I think we were the first company in Europe that year that was profitable and debt-free. Wow. Um, that, that, yeah, that kind of shocked me. Um, but uh, but equally, you kind of debt-free debt makes a lot of sense up to a certain point, and then investors go, well, what are you doing? Why aren't you carrying debt? That, that makes no sense. <laughs> so, hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the rules change a little bit as you go through it. But, um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating time, and it's, it's great to kind of learn from uh, because so much is open and transparent these days and there's so much content out there, it's great yep. to be able to sort of learn and see what other people are doing and what's working and what's not working. Unfortunately, we're coming up you know, to the latter end of, of the podcast, I feel like we could chat for, for hours. And so I hope, you know, someday, someday I'll get you back on, but I've, I've got, you know, a few, a few questions and, 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 and these are kind of philosophical questions in a way to, to, to kind of wrap up this, this podcast, but you've, you've chatted in prior podcasts about the importance of surrounding yourself with people that are more knowledgeable and, you know, just to use the blanket term better than you. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Why is why is that so important to create a network like that around yourself? Um, well, I, I have a very low barrier, so most people I meet uh, <laughs> qualify for that. So. I'm the exact same um, way. The exact same. Way. Um, uh, it was actually I, I kind of learned it. Um, I, I used to do rowing uh, or crew, as as you guys call it in in the US, um, and uh, I always wanted to be the best person in the boat because uh from an ego perspective you know that that uh that sort of tied tied to my ego i wanted to be best um and i remember being i think i was the, i was the the best in our university crew um and and that was great and then i went and sat in somebody else's crew and i was the worst in this other crew and and i spent the summer rowing with them and and I learned so much more by being the worst person in the boat mm. um, because I didn't have to worry about anybody else. I could just focus on getting better and, and copying, learning from the strategies of, of the, the seven other people in the boat that were all better than me. Um, and, uh, and I remember going back to university after the summer and getting into this boat um, where suddenly I was the, the, the strongest again in the boat and but I was constantly kind of having to support everyone else and my rowing got worse because I was trying to balance out other people's uh, mistakes and it was a it was a really kind of strong uh, message for me that that actually uh, I really want to position myself where um, yeah I'm not not the smartest in in the room and it um, it does batter your ego, but it's um, yeah. yeah, it's it's the best way to to learn. So, yeah, def definitely, um, it's something that I, I try and do as much as possible. I love that, and <laughs> I just I just kind of and 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 I resonate so so much with the idea of you know people are low hurdles to get into that because for myself I I I find I find that so true where you know everybody I meet I'm just like wow you know, you are, you are so much better at me in this and that. And, you know, even, even going back to, I love chess and I always say like, I love playing chess, but I'm so bad at chess. And, um, you know, I've, I've, 
I've I've surrounded myself with just great chess players throughout my life. Like in high school, in in my study hall, I would play against a guy who you know got a perfect score on his SAT and was just this all around genius. And he would beat me in five ten minutes, and I would consider a win taking him fifty minutes. And, yeah. you know, him just saying, all right, we'll resume this tomorrow. And I was like, all right, cool. That's a win. And so I, <laughs> I just, I just definitely, yeah. definitely resonate with that. And, you know, last question before we get into, you know, where people can find you and, and, and all that, um, what is, what is stopping most entrepreneurs or most investors from succeeding or fulfilling their dreams in, in your opinion? I know that's a loaded question and you can kind of go on a tangent there, but you know, what do you think are the two main reasons why some entrepreneurs stay as a wantrepreneur and they don't make that step from, you know, idea to succession? Uh, yeah, it's difficult to generalize. I think um, a lot of people are very, and yeah, generally if I find myself procrastinating on anything, it's because I'm worried about the outcome um so a lot of people do love the idea um but they don't want to face the rejection and and so going remember when we talked about me not backing my ideas um in unless i got somebody to buy into them well the, the problem with getting someone to buy into them is you you're going to get rejected um and so it's easier to not face the market uh, it's easier to kind of sit sit at home and build the product and design it and make it look pretty and build pretty websites and uh, fancy business cards and all of those things that are that feel like you're being an entrepreneur but actually are completely irrelevant. Um, mm. You know the the real value is going out and talking to the market and learning from uh, getting yeah getting smacked down and, and figuring out how you can actually add value to someone and you don't need a website and a fancy business card in order to do that um, so I think that's definitely an entrepreneurship that tends to be what what holds people uh, back a lot or certainly what's held held me back in the past um, but yeah it's a it's a big question <laughs> yeah no it, it it is it is so you know i apologize obviously for 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 kind of the loaded loaded nature of that question now <laughs> i'm i'm very i'm very interested to hear your response because a the sheer amount of people that you know and that you've met is 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 staggering and so this question is going to be very interesting and i've asked this for everybody on the show so far, and I've gotten various responses from investors like Buffett, Greenblatt, to inventors, theorists, and you know Albert Einstein type guys. Now, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be, and why? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one, and I know it's going to be one of those ones that whatever I say, I'm going to spend the rest of the day going, no, you know what, I should have said somebody <laughs> else. <laughs> um, <laughs> One of my uh, favorite business books, and it's really dry, um, uh, and, and I think it's actually out of print now, but it's called Billionaire, and it's about Sir James Goldsmith, who, um, I, ironically, because I'm building conglomerates, um, you know, the, the sort of diversified investment holding groups, and, and Sir James Goldsmith was most famous for buying conglomerates and breaking them up. Um, but but he was a he was a fascinating character and an incredibly good entrepreneur um, before he got into starting to to buy up businesses um, and I think I'm, I'm not sure I particularly like him um, but I think he would be a fascinating character to uh, 
to learn from um, because those those guys there was a few of them sort of in the in the late seventies and eighties that were incredibly creative with uh, mm. uh, their understanding of business and and seeing undervalued assets and um, yeah just uh, fa- fascinating that um, was a fascinating era for uh, those big business guys so yeah just, so James Goldsmith would probably be an interesting person to have lunch with. I have not even heard of that name, so I'm excited to actually go go do some research on him, see if that book is still in print. If it is, it's probably got that margin of safety price tag on it, thousands of dollars worth for for a book. Um, yeah, it's called, now, I think it's called Billionaire by Ivan Fallon. Um, okay. Ivan Fallon written some brilliant uh, business books about the 80s. Um, awesome. You go down that rabbit hole. I I will definitely go down that rabbit hole later <laughs> later later this week. Now, Callum, this has been a tremendous a tremendous interview. I've learned so much. I know I know those that are listening are going to really take a lot of nuggets from this. Where can people go to find you if they want more information or if they want to try to reach out? Yeah, and probably the easiest is LinkedIn. Um, uh, so li- LinkedIn, I'm fairly active on Twitter, but if um, I often DMs get direct messages get lost in twitter um whereas if you connect with me or follow me on linkedin and send me a message um uh either me or someone on my team will will definitely get to it so um yeah that those are those are the easiest ways to to get in touch and yeah i'd love love to hear from anyone that's agrees with what we're doing or disagrees with what we're doing or has any opinions always always keen to, to learn fantastic callum thank you so much for joining the podcast Right, Brendan, thank you very much. It's been, been a pleasure.